What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm going to kick it off by reading another review that one of you dropped on the podcast on Apple Podcasts. The review says, hands down, the best community builders pod. This one's from the Gare Bear 93. Said, David is incredibly insightful and his commitment to and passion for educating his audience shines through. The diverse set of guests has opened my eyes to the possibilities of community building as a serious career. Thank you so much for the review, the Gare Bear. If any of you drop a review on Apple Podcasts, you might have a chance to have your review read on the podcast and really appreciate it. These reviews go a long way for helping us grow the reach of this show. Today's interview is with Donnie Weinstein in the community space. He's a veteran who's worked with lots of different companies, started with HP, building their customer community over many years then went to Domo and built their community program from the ground up. And today he's working with Kaltura, building their community. He's worked in both B2B communities and B2C communities. One area that he really specializes in, which we spend the first part of this episode talking about, is localization of communities. How do you bring your community to different languages and to different regions around the world? It can be surprisingly complex to bring a community to another language. For example, he launched an entire new community focused just on their Japanese audience at Domo because that was a huge audience for them. How do you make sure those communities can talk to each other? How do you set up leadership to welcome those new members and understand the local culture and be able to manage those community spaces? We also talk about gamification and he shares his framework for how to think about gamifying your community and rewarding your community members for taking actions really, really thoughtful stuff on gamification that can have a big impact on your community. We talk about the business value of community and where he believes community should sit within the org. So we cover a whole lot of good topics in this one. You're going to learn a lot. Let's dive in. Donnie, welcome to the show. David, pleasure to be here. Very excited to chat. Why don't we just start with sharing a little bit about your background, how you got into community and the work that you're doing today at Kaltura. Yeah, so it's been uh, quite the journey in the community world. So I've been in community world going back to late 2007, early 2008. I was lucky to be on the, the ground floor of the HP social care team. I spent many years at HP after graduate school, and most of my career was in the consumer support and services organization. So lots of global program management roles around email support, chat support, you know, improving the web experience, better content driver downloads. And in the late latter part of uh, well, 2007, the Americas organization did not get a renewal for a, a JD Power Award because we were missing a branded community. Actually, they called it a forum back then. We had one with the Compic acquisition. They killed it. And so we had a charter to go and actually build one that HP owned. 
IT basically told us that it would take them four years to build one. And we're like, you guys are crazy. And so we got permission to go external. And this is, again, back in the days with Jive and, and uh, Lithium being the heavy hitters. Uh, we vetted those vendors, went with Lithium, and really you know, kind of had a grand slam. So our three-person team grew to 35 over about a seven-year period. Wow. I was responsible for launching and scaling those seven language communities. Again, it was B2C. So we're talking about people that owned PCs, printers, tablets, home and micro business. And because we scaled so dramatically with the communities and became one of Lithium's largest customers fairly quickly, we were very fortunate to learn from some of the best, like Joe Cothrell and Brian Oblinger and others. And so really, that's where I learned my ABCs around community and really building and scaling those teams across multi-language. So we did English and French and German for EMEA, Spanish and Portuguese for Latin America, as well as EMEA, and then, of course, simplified Chinese and Korean for, for APJ. And over time, we kind of learned how to dabble in other social channels across, you know, how do you provide support on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. From there, I went on to, I was recruited by Domo to build out their brand new B2B community. So Domo was pre-IPO, about a four or 500-person company, extremely well-funded. Their COO understood the value of community. This is in late 2014. and was fortunate to get in on the ground floor there and spent uh, a little more than five years at Domo building out their B2B community. So a very different animal than B2C. You know, it's a SaaS solution. You're dealing with IT professionals and driving. And again, with the HP community, it was very much support-oriented. And so when you have this incredible scale, it was all about how do you deflect the cost to the, to the contact centers and drive case reduction and case deflection. In the case of Domo, it was much more than that. It was really driving an ecosystem where we were generating value across the organization, not just around support, but also content for education, really developing advocates for promoting our brand and driving upsell and retention. And of course, the last part was having an ideas exchange to help make our product better. Mm. We had a really good run there. Unfortunately, Domo had a bad quarter post-IPO uh, at the very beginning of COVID, decided to lay off uh, quite a few people, including myself. And I spent a good portion of the summer of 2020 talking to more than 40 amazing brands. We'll get into a little bit more of that later. But along the way, I met, uh, was introduced to Kaltura. They wanted me to come in and present to them about the value of community and tell them my journey. I thought maybe, okay, I'll probably be a consultant here. And in the end, they're like, we want to talk one-on-one. -on -one. And that actually led to my meeting with my future boss. She's like, tell me your whole life story. I don't have a job for you, but I think you'd be a great ad for the company. I get the community stuff. And so it had that conversation. We went up to the GM, took a while to make it happen. And here we are. Very cool. That's quite a journey. I'm curious first, so going from a very consumer-focused community into a B2B community. What was the biggest difference for you in managing those kinds of community programs? Sure. So with B2C and HP, you know, we had in the early days, we didn't even have like email validation. It was pretty much open season for anybody and everybody to open an account and join the community. And so on one hand, that allowed for incredible scale. Hmm. The Achilles heel was it also opened us up to a lot of spamming and you know negative commentary and just inappropriate things that were happening in community. And I remember there was a point, probably in year two, where we literally had to spend six months with Lithium developing this sophisticated spamming application because we did that in parallel to getting the email validation under control. But again, you're dealing with sort of Joe Consumer as well as pretty much the general market. In, in a B2B world, you have fully integrated SSO, you're clearly limiting it to your customer base. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, those customers are using your platform as part of their day job. So their behavior is going to be a lot different. You're not going to get really extreme, unprofessional behavior in a B2B community like that, as you would necessarily, mm -hmm. let's say, in a B2C world where we really have to look at aggressive spam filters and just you mm -hmm. know off-the-wall charts and really using that banning hammer. 
very uncommon in B2B environment. That's true. If you have to ban a customer from your community, that's going to be a lot stickier than a random consumer. That is an interesting difference. Yeah. And for example, we had, when we scaled uh, Portuguese, we had a, a guy, I think it was like a 20 year old in Sao Paulo that was just crushing it. I mean, answering everything in the community, the numbers were off the charts. And again, Portuguese is a large volume language, but certainly not as large as English. And his numbers were rivaling some of our super fans in English. Mm. But he wouldn't let anybody else comment in the community. So he was like giving the hammer to everybody else and insulting people. And we had to kind of have a sidebar one time and two times and three times. And mm-hmm. it turns out he had his own small business and he was really knowledgeable about PCs and printers. And we even brought him out of the HP campus in Sao Paulo. We had took him to lunch. And we kind of said, hey, you can't behave this way. Yeah. And it was like one warning after another. We ended up having to ban him for life. We took a huge hit on our, on our numbers because oh, no. what, after six months, the, the community thrived. Because all these people who wanted to contribute, they finally showed up because they could, they were able to. Mm. They weren't intimidated. When banning one person actually creates value for a whole lot of other people. That's such a bummer too. I was hoping it was going to be a story where like you brought him in for lunch and he's like, okay, I see what you mean. And he like changes his ways and starts becoming a proactive contributor. But no, he still sucked. No, in this case, he felt it was his personal fiefdom and it was his community for the taking. So, <laughs> oh, well, all right. Sounds like you made the right choice. It's interesting. So what do you do in a situation where you have this really large consumer-facing community to balance the like generalist member who is just kind of average consumer versus the people who are like very actively engaged? Do you create dedicated spaces for the people who are like really invested and who are there for the right reasons and then have another space that's just for like the broad public? And I'm asking kind of in the context as well of like, this Web 3.0 world now where Uh 10,000 people who are interested in loosely around a project and they hope they get rich. But there's some people there who are there for like really genuine, really meaningful reasons, but they end up getting drowned out by the noise of the masses. So how do you balance both of those user or member types within the community? Sure. I think it comes back to, there's a pretty high correlation, I think, as it relates to gamification. You've got to be able to have some sort of ladder or structure that can you can kind of identify and help identify those top contributors for community. Number one, we were kind of fortunate, you know, HP had a number of homegrown communities on the enterprise side for, you know, storage and servers and so forth that had been built mm-hmm. back into probably the early, the late 1990s. And there were several boards that addressed some of the consumer products like desktop PCs and inkjet printers. So we actually reached out to some of the super fans that were the top of the boards and said, hey, we're, we're planning to build this new thing and we'd like you to come join the party, and we kind of grandfathered them in. And that was very insightful as far as the, the characteristic. But over time, we were able to kind of nurture this, you know, out of the 2 million people that joined those seven large communities, we ended up cultivating several hundred that were, you know, super fans. So we had two incredible social support summits, in San, one in San Francisco, one in Orlando, where we actually flew everybody in from around the world, wine and dine there for a couple of days, you know, had the direct access to our top product people. And so for them, it was really, we did several things. One was you had the the leaderboard, the gamification and so forth. That was one. Two, we had a VIP board so we could actually have a more intimate conversation with those folks. And frankly, these are your people. And so you want to be able to develop that more intimate relationship with them. But they could also provide tremendous insight on what they're seeing because at the end of the day, they become part of the extended team. And then even when we flew them out to San Francisco, the first summit, there's even things you learn about the inner circle of people. So the mm-hmm. turn of this conflict between two of our super fans, we didn't even know about it. 
Mm. And I and again, we had this random thing where I was going to North Beach for dinner and someone else was going somewhere else. We had a sign-up board and I ended up having two of the folks that were on each other's nerves. I didn't know about it. And like, I don't want to go to dinner with him. And I said, look, you're coming to dinner with me. And so we got there. By the time we got to dinner, we had dinner, we had a few beers. They were like best friends again. They were inviting, inviting each other <laughs> over to their, to their places. It's like, it was amazing. Mm. But yeah, it's all about creating that space so that you can actually tap into those incredibly valuable people. And at the same time, they're answering a ton of questions. So they're actually inter- they're interacting with the broader population. So they're also going to provide you with really good insights as far as what we could do better in the community. Right. They become kind of representatives for the larger community. So I love that. So if you have this really large community with lots of different people contributing, kind of a broad consumer base, create dedicated spaces and experiences for the most engaged people to be able to connect with you and your team and each other. That makes a lot of sense. Correct. And the other thing too is people worry about, okay, I'm going to deal with this crazy volume. I'm going to have a hundred boards. And it's like, no, I remember, you know, Joe Cothrell, one thing that resonated with me was just, you really have to start small. And so we really forced at the very beginning, a very few number of boards around conversations. And then over time, you can actually see the customers dictating, this is the nature of, there's now a new conversation that's sort of emerging and you kind of carve that piece out. You, and, you know, Totally. You let the customers dictate, not your necessarily your support team, your product team say, oh, I need a board for this. No, you need to have the people on the feet on the street there first, even though it may not be, in, it may show up in more of a general area and then carve that out and you can move that into a new, a new section. Yeah, it's a balance. Yeah, I agree. Generally start with like one space and then as the conversation starts siphoning or you're like, wow, this is a really common theme or type of person or type of conversation then you can create more spaces. But if you have too many spaces from the beginning, you're kind of spreading the community out too thin. Mm-hmm. I like it. So I want to talk about the language, growing the communities to new languages and internationalization of communities because mm-hmm. it's a very common question that I get. I don't usually have a great answer because it's so complex and hard. Mm-hmm. And you're someone who's done this a few times now. So... I guess let's just start with, could you walk me through what does it mean to internationalize a community, to scale a community to other countries? Does this mean you're just adding languages to an existing forum? Are you launching entirely new forums? Just give us a one-on-one level. What does it mean to do that kind of program? Sure. And I just actually gave us a pretty detailed talk on this at the Hierologic Superform. So we'll have a link to that nice. in our resources. And I was actually interviewed even before that in August with... Uh, Wendy P's at the Global Marketing Forum. So we'll share those resources. But to, to David's point, you first got to take a step back and say, all right, where is my audience? Where are they at? What languages do they actually speak? What languages do they actually want to? Can they interact in? And would they prefer to act, interact in? So it could be that your products and services are already serving an audience. Let's say it's an IT professional and they're serving European market. Well, many IT professionals in EMEA, are, they're pretty fluent in English. So it really comes down to understanding, okay, how much of a need, if I enable the experience in, let's say, simplified Chinese or in Korean or in Romanian, is that going to enable or create a a stronger community? Is that going to strengthen my relationship with my customers or my peers? So you got to start with that. And the question is, well, how do I figure that out? I just want to, I just want to define first for anyone who doesn't know the acronyms. EMEA is Europe, Middle East, and Asia, right? Sorry, it's too many years at HP. It's like we got joined and you have a dictionary of acronyms. A lot of acronyms. <laughs> I'm just confirming that's what it stands for, right? Europe, Middle East, and Asia. Yeah, so EMEA is yeah, Europe, Middle East, and then APAC would be Asia Pacific. So when you're going international to another region or language, you first need to ask yourself, all right, are we already doing business there? 
do we already provide support in that language? So for example, in the case of HP, we had an amazing, incredibly large support organization. And we had phone support, chat support, email support. I think our annual budget was almost a billion dollars a year back in the day. Wow. If you think about this operation, we had web support and I think 24, 26 languages, maybe it's over 30 today. So there was a tremendous amount of data we already had. We already know we have support in all these languages. We have volume coming through phone and email and web. So that was a pretty easy way to measure, you know, okay, these are the languages we're ready to invest in. But it could be that you have a much smaller operation. Maybe your Domo, like your pre-IPO, like a Domo. So I think you got to take a step back and say, all right, how important is the language for the business, for the community? What kind of volume, how much of a requirement is it? And you look at, okay, are we providing support in that language? Yes or no? Okay, what kind of volume are we getting? Are we getting five phone calls a month in Japanese or a hundred or a thousand? Same with you know other touch points. The same would be true of, do you have feet on the street in those languages or in those countries? Those are great resources to tell you, okay, you know what? If we enabled a conversation area in Spanish, it would actually strengthen our brand. So I think you got to understand the landscape first and understand, okay, what does my customer base or community base look like? And, you know, if we have English only today, are they in full engaged or are they just lurkers? And if we actually enabled Spanish, would they actually, would we increase engagement by 20, 30%? Mm -hmm. So I think you got to build out the volume, you know, understand the landscape, the need, the business case. Once you have that clear... Then the question becomes, okay, how do you go about doing that? So there's really two ways to approach it. In the case of HP, again, we had just crazy volume and we wanted to make a, a consistent experience as far as the look and feel from a support community, but we wanted it to be 100% localized. So actually, we paid for dedicated instances or servers by language. And again, this is going back to 2008 to 2010. The benefits there are is that Again, your login or your experience will be complete. Every element on the page, from mouse overs to the WYSIWYG, the entire experience can be fully localized in, let's say, simplified Chinese. The downside is that all the content in that server is only in that language. So you're not going to get the same volume, let's say, in Korean that you're going to get in English. And so again, the talk that I gave at, at Higher Logic, I have a pretty detailed slide about pros and cons. So on one hand, you're going to get the fully localized experience. You can tailor it more to that particular language. The downside is it's typically more expensive because you're paying for a dedicated server. You've got to have a separate login. It's a bit more challenging. If you've got moderators serving, let's say, multi-language, you have moderators serving French and German, or let's say Spanish and Portuguese. Well, they have two different logins. Now, sometimes you've got cookies, and if you have both windows open, you can top it pretty easily. Maybe keep the same handle. But you have sort of that challenge. And the other thing, too, is the gamification is distinctly separate. So it actually can be customized and tailored for that particular language. That's sort of one approach. If you don't have necessarily that volume, like in the case of Domo, we had one server, but we paid for a language pack in Japanese. Japanese is incredibly important for the Domo market. And the reason is the founder, Josh James, went on a mission to Japan. He's fluent in Japanese. And the first international office Domo opened up was in Tokyo. So when I joined in 15, the company was founded in 2011, they already had 30 large customers in Japan. Sorry, they had 50 large customers in Japan and 30 people already in the Tokyo office. And they said, we need to have a localized, fully localized experience for Japanese. And so we paid them, we invested the money to put it, to have a, a Japanese language pack for the community. So what does that mean? With again, fully integrated single sign-on, we also had data that showed, okay, are our users using Domo in that language? We had six languages that were localized. 
But everywhere except for Japan, the IT admins had set the default as English. So only Japanese was the default experience in our product in Japanese. So having said that, we had justification to do Japanese. When they would toggle from product into community, it would trigger the language pack. Or if they signed in by SSO, it would trigger the language pack, meaning the entire experience would be converted to Japanese. They would be taken straight into the Japanese section of community. Now, the other languages, let's say French, German, Spanish, the default was using it in English, but they could, the user could manually change it to their preferred language. But we only had maybe 80, 90 users around the world in each of those languages using Domo in that language. So we said, that's not enough to build out a community right. or to support the language back. So what we did, there was a pretty inexpensive solution, which is a Google search widget. It was some pretty easy code. And we actually applied that on all of our pages so that our customers could then, if they wanted to consume all of the English content in, let's say, French, they could mouse over it, everything would be converted to French and they would be done. So that was a pretty good win-win. And again, there, it's more cost-efficient. You're getting all the content in one place. All the searches is right there. The downside is, you know, the search is typically weighted heavily toward English and so on. Right. At the same time, it did serve our Japanese market quite well. In fact, one of our super fans, I initially thought he was fluent in English. And when I met him, he didn't know a word of English. He was actually posting in English and Japanese, and he was using Google Translate to actually create content. Hmm. So he actually became one of our top leaders in our in our leaderboard. So that's what I was going to ask. When people contribute in Japanese, are you translating it into English for them, or they're doing that on their own using something like Google Translate, and you just translate the English content so they could consume it in their local language? No. So all the Japanese content was created for the most part by our customers. We had, we did have Japanese personnel from Domo who created Domo content. Mm-hmm. And we would review the content that was generated there to see if it made sense to be converted to English and add it to the English side. Interesting. The benefit was we actually had a customer who actually was doing it automatically because he was so motivated to be on the leaderboard. Hmm. He was translating every one of his posts. And in the end, Domo actually hired the guy, which was a win for Domo and a, and a loss for my community. <laughs> That's really cool. Interesting. So they're, in both of these situations, they're distinct communities. Like the people who are participating in the Japanese community are existing in a different space than the people who are participating in the English community. No, no. So to be clear, it was actually the same community. Uh-huh. Uh, we had a Japanese category embedded within the general Domo community. Now, the thing was that when they navigate, when they signed in from the Japanese experience, we would know that we would take them straight into the Japanese section. However, they could easily navigate to the English homepage and consume that and use the Google tool to consume that content. And would the Japanese category have all of the subcategories that the English one had, or was it more simple? It's just kind of one space. No, it was a lot simpler. Again, you're not going to get the same volume that you have in English. Right. But it was still high quality. So it's interesting. Yeah, I think that's an important point because when I think about internationalizing communities, I think the default, at least in my head, is often to say like, okay, how do we copy over our entire community into this other language? When in reality, that audience is probably going to be much smaller. They probably don't need all of the subsections and bells and whistles and features of the largest English-speaking community that you have. So it's really just about creating a space. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be a whole other community platform, just a space where people can speak in their local language. But you know, in a lot of cases, they can still use the English community as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the other key here as well is you've got to have your local people involved to understand 
the pulse of that community and really make sure that that experience is resonating with the customer base. Right. Because one size does not fit all. And especially as you get into some of the, the Asian languages and regions, the web interfaces are different sometimes. Obviously, the character mm. sets are much different. And even culturally, the behavior in the community, even we saw this at HP, many of the European and South American languages, their behavior in the community as we scaled is very similar to English. But the simplified Chinese and Korean ones were, were quite different. Right. They're much more reserved and we learned a ton. But I think he, having part of your team, people who understand the culture, it's not just about translating the content, it's also understanding the cultural nuances of how things are presented and even responded to is incredibly important. Totally. So how do you do that? Do you hire someone full-time who's local to that region and understands the culture and, and they're managing that community? Is, is it all volunteer-driven? Is it both? Well, I think it needs to tap into resources. So in my case, in the case of Doma, we had, I think we had, you know, support engineer as well as CSM for Japan that were involved in community. And then in the end, when we hired our super fan, he ended up becoming the community manager for the Japanese community because he was already a superstar there. And in the case of HP, we actually had a model where we scaled and hired dedicated community managers for Europe, as well as specific language folks. And so, you know, folks like Wendy Skippers were a lead of mine back in the day for the EMEA market, French and German. We had a team in Sao Paulo who was responsible for Spanish and Portuguese. And the same is true for simplified Chinese and Korean. They were based out of Singapore. So I would have weekly calls with all of my leads, you know, talking about, you know, how things are going. I'd have one-off sessions with them. I would travel in region to do the onboarding, you know, get the CMs trained and onboarded. And also get them involved operationally, you know, across the organization. Mm. Interesting. And so for regions that don't speak English at all, are you translating a lot of the English content into their language? Like, it makes sense to have just one space for them if they can kind of speak English and their local language. And so they have their space for their local language, but they still have full access to the English resources. But if they don't also speak English, do you need to go a lot more in depth into the kinds of community experiences and resources that you're providing to those regions? Yes. So I think, again, it goes back to working with your local team to understand what the needs are. And certainly as great content would be created in the English experience in particular, we would look to taking the time to invest in in translating that content and and having it posted on in the localized board. Mm. But at the same time, having a tool like the Google Translate widget also, it made it a lot easier to consume the English content because today, where Google's at today compared to where they were 10 years ago, it's sure. just not a day. Yeah. And you mentioned before that like knowing whether or not it's a good time to launch a community in another language is in part based on what your current traffic and what your current presence is within that community, which makes a lot of sense. Did you find that when you launched those communities in the other languages that that drove a lot of growth in those regions because now there was the opportunity to connect using their own language? Yeah, absolutely. So again, again, the case of HP was very much about support deflection. That was the number one metric back in the day. That was easily measurable through the work we did in, in traffic to the community and also the surveying work we did. You know, in the case of Domo... It was really quite important, again, for the support of the Japanese market. And, you know, we certainly saw that those accounts that had active members or even participation in the community, this is true across the board, but certainly it was the feedback we had for having that Japanese experience was, was very positive. And of course, we did some unique things with dedicated badges for Japanese members, or if they attended a Japanese meetup, we worked with the local team to get specific designs done for those members. Got it. 
Okay. So yeah. So it sounds like you want to have a foundation of the language. You don't want to start from like not having anybody and then trying to launch a community in order to grow. But if you have that foundation, then the people who speak that language are more likely to be engaged in the community. And you might see an uptick in total active members as well in the community once they have that dedicated space. Absolutely. Got it. No, it was also quite beneficial in helping drive some of the in real life events, you know, leveraging the engagement we had in community and teeing up, you know, different meetups and so forth. Hmm. And last question, do you find that it's hard to make everyone feel like they're part of one community when you're starting to kind of create these separate spaces? Do they feel like they're connected or does it feel like now they're kind of independent communities that are loosely aligned on the same product or topic? No, I think in general, I think at the end of the day, the majority of your core is there for everybody. And then, of course, having dedicated spaces need to serve a particular purpose. So whether that be a VIP board for your super fans or a language section, I think at the end of the day, it serves everybody really well. The fact that they have the opportunity to meet or connect with other people from other parts of the world that speak other languages, we certainly saw this at our support summits with HP. Getting the super fans all together, it didn't matter what language, what country they were from, but having them meet up from people from South Carolina, meeting people from Korea or from Sao Paulo. And the common theme was, okay, I'm a top gun on troubleshooting HP desktop PCs. So again, it's about that common connection and a common theme. And I think mm. globalizing it just added an extra carrot to it. I love that. And it made it even richer. Yeah. And it seems like even if online there's some segmentation, in-person events or even virtual events give you an opportunity to kind of bring people together. It's always really cool when you get to go to an actual global event and you meet people from around the world who share your interests and your passions. Like Sometimes it's a lot cooler than just meeting another person from the US. Not as interesting. (laughs) All right. So I want to switch gears a little bit. You mentioned badging a few times. I know gamification is a topic that you love to talk about as well. Mm -hmm. What's the Donnie Weinstein playbook for gamification? How do you think about implementing gamification in a community? So ideally, you've got to make it so that it's challenging but attainable from a customer perspective. Clearly, you want to have, you don't want to reveal all your cards as far as what the secret formula is for gamification in a given community. Again, we learned a lot back in HP days with our friends at Lithium. And you have to work with your community to understand what resonates with them as well as that's sort of a tie into the brand. I'm actually working on this right now with Kaltura because right now it's fairly, we just opened up the community this last month to everybody. We did a beta for a few months. But right now, we just have a fairly bland, generic ladder, and we're working out with doing some micro-focus groups to get, okay, we're a video company, what's the right theming? In the case of Domo, again, Domo means thanks in Japanese. It's Domo mm-hmm. you know, Arigato. We'll be thank you very much. And so I wanted to do something that aligned with that. So we ended up calling the community the dojo, like a martial arts center of excellence. Mm-hmm. And we ended up creating a ranking structure that was martial arts belts. That makes that easy, yeah. <laughs> we started out as a white belt and a black belt. And so every year we started out with a you know, first conference, we had a lunch, and then it was a happy hour. We had kind of our step and repeat wall. It was like the you know the Donnie Weinstein Oscar show where we I recognized my top community members. And when budgets were good, I would just tap into the executive experience team in marketing and say, All right, what are you guys giving the, the executives that are spending six figures on our software? I get them for my top members. So the last year before budgets were getting cut, we had Dumbo branded AirPods. Mm-hmm. Well, in 2019, that we didn't have the budget for that. And at this point, we had, you know, we started out with like five belts. I think blue belt was the highest in the first couple of years. Then we expanded it all the way up to black belt. So there were like 10 levels. Mm-hmm. It was the first year people attained black belt status. 
So I went to my kid's martial arts studio and I said, hey, where do you guys procure your black belts? And they gave me the name of the vendor in the Bay Area. And I ordered real black belts for my customers. That's awesome. And I had the Doma logo, the Dojo logo, and had their community handle in the middle. And nobody except for me knew about it. So when we got to the event, I had them all hidden under a blanket. My team didn't even know about it. And the customers were just floored. They were like, oh my God. And then the people like, I want one too. I said, well, you got to earn it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's how gamification works. Now we saw just, you know, and so that's what I'm working on right now as far as getting that right theming done in the current community. So I think the two things are, you've got to have a ladder. It doesn't have to be 20 levels. You can start out with five levels. It should be, the first level should be pretty easy so people feel like they're making progress and attaining. But then you have to have it in a manner that's not easily gamified or people can't easily figure it out. Right. And then secondarily, you want to be able to build it out so that after your one or two, you've got another five levels to go. Totally. I think that's sweet spot probably 10 or 15 over time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you want to tailor it so that it resonates with the members of your community. So again, our theme is very much around video, and that's what we're working toward. And I hope to have that kind of uh, figured out in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. So is it going to be like, like cameraman, director, producer? <laughs> Well, I've got a draft of kind of a Hollywood theme right now that we're going to review with marketing, but I also want to get some customer inputs as well. All right. I love it. So you have your ladder and then you have a theme to make it like a fun brand that, that, that resonates with your members. The other key thing that's important as well is you've got those power users that are in there all the time and they're going to be taken care of by the ladder. But then you've got people that they're probably not t- that less than 30% grouping and they come in occasionally, but it's kind of like I'm aging myself here, but they're kind of like EF Hutton. And when they actually do something committed, it's like, oh my God. And so you want to be able to have any sort of an accelerator or a badge or you know, someone makes an amazing video or they have this incredible post, but they don't have time to chime in more than, let's say, once a month. Because those people are as important to get recognized right. and be able to move them up the ladder as well. Right. So have systems in the gamification program to keep the more passively engaged people or the sporadically engaged people, not just the, the power users. Correct. And and you mentioned like not letting them know how it works. Do not share the criteria for reaching levels transparently. My experience, you never share that because then they, they the someone will figure out how to gamify it. Obviously, you can certainly communicate its quality over quantity. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. you've got to be there and you got to show up and you got to participate. But certainly. Enabling rich discussions, providing good answers, creating great video. You can give examples of things that will move the needle, but never tell them, oh, it's going to require X posts and this number of visits Mm. and this number of solutions. There's no point. Got it. Because they'll game it. So was there a qualitative element to it? Like, Would you have to decide who's getting leveled up or was that all automated? It was qualitative. So I mean, I would look at, again, people creating an awesome video or they would show up for a user group and present things of that nature where you want to be able to accelerate their movements. So it was up to your discretion if they would be leveled up. Mm -hmm. Correct. Oh, that's a lot of power. Well, let's see now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, and I guess it's probably a combination of like, they did something good, but also you probably had some criteria that you secretly looked for, like number of posts or number of interactions or length of time as a member or something like that. Yeah. In many cases, those these folks are frequent visitors. So it's not like they're just showing up once a month or once a quarter. They're right. there all the time. They just right. are too busy to really come up with, uh, you know, to be to really spending a lot of time in the community per se. But then mm. when they do, it's like, wow. Mm. And so you want that badge, that leveling to show up in the community for things like Koros and some of the enterprise community tools they have 
kind of the functionality to build in your own leveling system, right? Right. So Chorus had, of course, Lithium had a really good tool. They, they actually had a thing called bonus points. And mm-hmm. so that, to your point, I did operationalize that a little bit as far as we had certain things where we dedicate X points to someone that did this thing. If it was speaking at an event or a video, whatever we, weren't, we were trying to drive. And some of the other platforms that may not exist, and you've got to use badging that have sort of that association or that weighting to get them leveled up. Yeah, got it. Are there solutions for gamification that you like when it's not built into the tool? Like if someone's using something like a Slack or Facebook group or Discord or other programs that maybe don't have full functionality around it? Well, that's a great point. So one of the things, I mean, I've talked with companies like Influitive in the past, and they seem to have a really interesting solution. We looked at it, we didn't have the budget to take the plunge on it, but I have good things about it. Having said that, I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do right now is even look beyond community from an engagement perspective. I'm getting fully integrated now in Teltura with, we're not calling ourselves a customer engagement enabling the team, but it's really all the education, the training, learning. And so building out those personas of, okay, who are the users of our product? What's the persona? You know, am I an admin? Am I an end user? But then look at from a gamification perspective, not just community activity, but also did I take a training course? Did I take a certification? Did I attend a webinar? I know at Alterx, they have an amazing thing called the Weekly Challenge, which has been one of the most successful engagement tactics that I've seen, where they're creating content every week to challenge the community. They collaborate internally, you know, the community collaborates around what the answer should be, and then it's revealed kind of a week later. Well, all that, everything, we should be taking a full view about the customer's engagement from a learning and growing perspective, because at the end of the day, our goal is really about how do we enrich our customers' knowledge? Hmm to make them wiser about our products. Because if we do that, then guess what? They're going to use our product better and then they're potentially going to buy more. Mm. So we're trying to figure out how do we gamify that collectively? And there's a number of different products that are out there that we, we're looking at right now that may enable us to do that. That's outside of right. you know, the out-of-box gamification we have, let's say from Vanilla Hyrologic today. Totally. Yeah, it's cool. And I think there's a point in there that's important that when you gamify a community... It's tempting to just do things like look at activity rates and some of the more vanity metrics. But what you really want to do, what I'm hearing from you, is align the system with benefits to the member. Like if they're successful, they're learning, if they're growing, then the gamification system should represent that and show that. And so by essentially gamifying it, you're helping them help themselves. Absolutely. And particularly in a B2B world, again, I think if you go back to that analogy around B2C and B2B, B2C, I mean, everyone was trying to be on the top leaderboard. They wanted to get the swag from HP. They wanted to get invited right. to the social summit. The B2B world, they certainly want that as well. But at the end of the day, the B2B professionals, they want recognition for their knowledge of your platform. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know, getting an admin certification on one hand through our certification team, but also that I want to be a black belt in the Doma community. And they actually yeah. put that on those awards and they'll put that on their LinkedIn profile. And it's about showcasing their knowledge to their management so they get promoted mm-hmm. or they can go somewhere else because they've certified in an indirect manner how knowledgeable they are about that particular right. topic. More about showing off their expertise than some ambiguous score. Right. And they get to wear a cool black belt around their house and impress their kids. So yeah, they're, the real, they're <laughs> experts at home too. Awesome. Switching gears again a little bit. So Domo had some layoffs after the IPO. And so you went speaking to lots and lots of different companies about what they're building in community and ultimately found your new home at Kaltura. But I'm curious, that's a pretty cool perspective to have for someone who's been in the industry for so long and then to have so many of those conversations. 
What did you learn about the state of the community industry today from those conversations and how it's changed since you first started working in community? Sure. So uh, a few things. So first of all, I was back in 2014, we had a situation at HP where they were going through lots of changes. And I was in a situation in 2014 where I was being told to move from where I live today down to the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. But I had a really long window to, to work with. And so at that point in time, I kind of tapped into my LinkedIn network and started talking to lots of people, but I was still employed at HP. And so I had a little bit of practice with that. In this particular case, I kind of knew that I was going to land well. I kind of I was aware of where the community industry was evolving to. I mean, it's, we were it's kind of we we're kind of going through another renaissance, which seems to happen every 10 years. Brian Oblinger and I were in the same boat at the same time. So it was he and I were, were talking weekly, we we're talking to the same brands, going on the same yellow brick road. And mm-hmm. It was quite interesting because you're talking about two season members that have a tremendous amount of experience. And in many cases, the brands had no clue what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So they kind of felt a little bit intimidated. That was sort of one experience on one hand. Two, they, they didn't want to pay. Thirdly, you know, they just didn't know what they wanted. And so it was quite interesting. So from my perspective, I knew I was going to land well, but I knew it was going to take time. And I wasn't just going to settle for a job. But I also knew that it wasn't going to happen through a job board, even though I was talking, checking all the job boards and CMX and Community Club and so on. Uh, the key was really having conversations with anybody that I felt was relevant in my network that I could provide value and also where they might be able to add value for me. And so I literally set up more than 150 Zoom calls in that six-month window on my own that were not interviews, that were simply reaching out to people in my network that either knew directly or I've introduced you to say, hey, let's catch up. Let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that's how, how it happened. And so what I did notice is the fact that roles were definitely getting leveled up. Years ago, everybody and their grandmother were limited to a senior manager role. They wouldn't consider anything beyond that. Now we're seeing you know director, senior director, VP, chief community officer roles. And it's kind of like our day is finally coming. Mm-hmm. And then of course, just... Um, having the opportunity to find the right gig. And so I was fortunate not to have one, but two amazing offers the same week of my birthday last October. Happy birthday. And so after I had both in hand, I said, okay, now I'm going to take two days to think about it and decide what I want to do. And I went back and re-interviewed people that I wanted to talk to at both companies to get to my my decision. So I think the net net is, I wrote a Medium article about it. It's in my LinkedIn profile. We'll send a link out in the resources uh, about my journey. But I think, you know, today it's great the work that, you know, CMX is doing, Community Club, and even just people like Brian and Holly and Eric and Evers that are out there. It's really, it's, it takes a village. We're kind of elevating the industry and there's still a tremendous amount of education that has to happen in the corporate world, particularly about our value add and really where it should sit and how it should be positioned. Mm. So I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up on like, the value of community and communicating it. So it sounds like companies are valuing it more. They're more interested. We're leveling up. Community professionals are reaching director level, VP level, chief community officer. But it sounds from your experience like there's still a long road ahead. Like companies still don't really get it. They still don't really understand the value, maybe how to measure it. So I guess like, where do we go from here? What do we need to do as an industry to make sure that community becomes a staple and when it's less hot in the future because it's so hot right now. And if the fad fades, what do we do to make sure that we have staying power? So that's a great question. I think it goes back to having a consistent clarity and communication about what community is because it's, you know, so I'm certainly seeing now that there's certain some part of the population that's just jumping on the bandwagon and using, you know, hashtag community for whatever they feel like. And 
But at the end of the day, we really need to show that it's an operation. It's a strong business vertical. It's an ecosystem that can serve the business and not just be a silo developer community or support community or an advocacy community. It's really all of the above. And so it can drive value from support deflection. It can create content for education. It can create super fans to drive advocacy, which drives you know more business. And then, of course, leveraging and tapping into voice of customer to drive ideation and a better product. And there's probably even more than that. So I call it the new, I was pitching this last year, uh, community is the new horizontal. It's no longer something that's nice to have. It's really got to be ingrained in the DNA of the company. And I think this is where and I'm still going through that education process with my executives. Mm-hmm. When I got hired, I was hired by marketing. Now I sit under the chief customer officer because mm. I felt that that was going to be a better place longer term for me to be to get you know, the support needed to take community to the next level. Yeah. So I think for all of us, it's really having consistent communication about, okay, what really is community? What are the value adds? How does it tie into the business? And not just, oh, this is just a social media thing and I'll go hire a you know, college grad. Right. It's really no. This requires it's a full-on operation that helps to drive your business and create better connection for your customers. My you know, one of my analogies that I tee up a lot is that we're creating a branded cafe, and really anybody who's tied to your brand can come by the main entrance of the cafe, and as they come in, they can go talk to fellow users of your product or people who work at the company, and then if they have a more granular or specialized conversation, oh, I'm, I'm a VIP, I got to go to the VIP line. Mm. And thinking in that terms of, oh, what if they say something bad? I'm like, well, they're probably saying it already. You just don't have any ability to act yeah. on it. You, an opportunity to you want it to happen in your cafe. Do it with your dirty laundry in your backyard. So it's really about getting that consistency and it's a movement. And I think, as you know, so of course, your book and other great books that have been written recently are, are also helping the cause too. Yeah. What's your take on... It sounds like your company community, you felt it should sit under customer success, like the customer department's. In this new horizontal, I like that phrasing because you think of the different verticals in business, product and marketing and sales and engineering, whatever. Community is something that can impact all the different parts of the business. So it kind of functions horizontally or cross-functionally. What's your take on the whole, like, is it a hub and spoke model? Does community need to be its own department? How does it plug into driving growth and product and support and all these different things? Do you have a point of view on kind of the structure of community within a company? Yeah, so I think you need to find... At the end of the day, I think you need to have the right executive sponsor that is on board, number one. Number two, in case of my case, having, you know, being under the chief customer officer who's, to, who's responsible for a lot of the touch points with their customer facing is certainly key. Mm-hmm. You don't want to boil the ocean. You've got to be able to manage your wins sort of in a sequential manner well, by, by demonstrating value over time. Now, certainly, you want to go tackle all of those things that, that we mentioned. Some are going to be easier than others. Advocacy, that takes time. That just doesn't happen overnight. But right, right now, we're curating the community. you got to build those advocates. Some of the shorter-term wins will be around support, deflection, and content creation. But even, again, it's about that journey about making sure your executive chain is fully, un- they fully are understand and are on board, number one. And number two, that you're getting opportunities. I think this is one of the recommendations you had recently in your long uh, Twitter thread about discourse, is really getting an at-bat or an, a meeting with really all the executives around the company so they understand what you're doing, where the value add is, and how it can add value to what their operation. Because it takes they're just not going to say, oh yeah, go and make it happen. It's usually right. multiple conversations. It takes time. They get add resourcing. So you know, again, in yeah. my case, I came to the right place. We pivoted. But where I'm at right now, I feel pretty good about long-term success. And I'm going to be having more of those conversations going forward. Love it. All right. 
Well, we are at time for the first part of our interview. Now it's time for everyone's favorite part, the rapid fire question round. Donnie, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that food be? Pasta. Just pasta. What kind of pasta? Linguini. Linguini. <laughs> Any sauce? Any specific sauce? Oh, absolutely. You gotta, have, you gotta have sauce and cheese. Vodka? Yeah, straight up marinara. All right. Like it. Okay, next question. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others or to recommend to others? So the book is called Winning Ugly. And for those mm. of you who are not tennis uh, fans or players like myself, it's written by Brad Gilbert. And basically, Brad is a Barry Ray guy. He used to coach Andre Agassi. And essentially, he didn't have the best tennis skills back in the day, but he actually was successful beating people like McEnroe and Connors, not because he had the physical means to beat them, but actually beat them mentally. Mm-hmm. So I like it a lot, especially for... It's a good book for community managers and the fact that I'm a singles guy as well. And typically, you're out there all by yourself, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how do you navigate this landscape and get over that mountain. And so the book talks about the mental game of how you basically do things to navigate what seems to be a daunting task. Mm, I really like that. I hadn't heard of it. Going to add it to my list. All right, next question. What language do you wish you could speak and why? So there's quite a few on my list. I mean, I speak several languages already and I can probably order a beer and coffee and quite a few more. But I would say if I have to choose one, Russian. Just all my roots go back to the old country probably several generations ago. I've been there once in St. Petersburg. I think it's fascinating. And also just having another character set to read would be pretty cool to know. In addition, just culturally, it's a fascinating place. Love it. What other languages do you speak already? I'm fluent in Hebrew, and I've got conversational Spanish and German, and a few words in French, Dutch, Arabic, Italian. Wow. Yofi, mazel tov. I can order coffee. (laughs) That's about the extent. A little bit of Hebrew. All right. What's your wildest community story? I'll try to do this a minute or less. So Chicago User Group for Domo, we were giving out the physical award for the first person to achieve our Domo admin certification. And he was also one of my community black belts. So I'm in Chicago, I think it was summer 2019, and the customer had the, one of the coolest avatars. So his handle was ST Superman. Mm-hmm. His name was Scott Thompson. He actually took the, his avatar was half Clark Kent, half Superman. So I'm up there presenting to him. Little did I know, and again, we had the event in, in the loop, and then we had a happy hour later on. I'm presenting to him. There's a brand new customer from, I think, Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It's in the audience. And she sees me presenting to Scott or to Superman this award. I get to the happy hour and I, oh, while she's doing this, she turns to her college like, oh my God, it's Superman in the flesh. He's answered all these questions of mine in the community. <laughs> so this is an actual community superhero. What's that? Yes. So when we get to the happy hour, she's like, I want a selfie with uh, Superman. You have an actual community superhero. I love it. Yes. All right. Next question. Have you ever worn socks with sandals? Never. <laughs> Never? Oh, wow. Let's try it. That's fantastic. All right. Next question. Who in the world of community would you most like to take out for lunch? Could be dead or alive. Oh, there's quite a few, but I think pole position right now is Holly Firestone. Ah, well, she'll be busy for a little while. <laughs> so she and I were supposed to, I was, we were driving through in the summer and we couldn't make it happen. And so we're, we're due for lunch. Uh, yes. She's uh, going to be a mother soon. Yeah. Or is it ready? No, soon. I don't think it's happened yet. Soon. Soon. Not yet. So you have to wait your turn, but that's a good person (laughs) to have lunch with. And what's a community product you wish existed in the world? 
So I almost got thrown out of the first Link conference back in 2009 because I was asking too many questions. And I think this is still relevant, but if they were, <laughs> we're getting closer. At that time, I had suggested that the lithium, and again, because we were doing multi-languages, if we can get to the true AI, true metaverse, true real-time translation localization, where you really have one global community where you can actually engage in the language of your choice. Mm. And it's the application will actually create that fully localized experience. So not just translated content, but deliver a tailored localized experience for you so that you can consume your content and engage in the experience you want. That would be, that's gold. Well, damn. Maybe we should talk to our friend Mark Zuckerberg, his little meta project. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah, an, an extremely complex problem. Because even if it perfectly translates everything and adapts it, you still don't, then you're unaware of the other person's context. And maybe that's weird. I don't know. But I love the dream big answer to that question. All right, a couple more. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? So I think it's some thought to this. So probably, and again, there's just so many different ways we, we articulate community. But back in my sort of post end of high school, college days, I, got, I was following the Grateful Dead for a period of time and I became a tape trader. So getting connected to people who were, you know... A tape trader? Yes. So you traded cassette tapes? Cassette tapes. Oh, wow. That was a thing. Myself. That was a thing. And at one time I had 400 Grateful Dead concerts. Four, yeah, 400 cassette tapes. You had 400 Grateful Dead cassette tapes. I did. Wow. No longer. <laughs> no longer? They're probably worth a whole lot now. You should have held on to them. It's all been digitized now. Now they've got exchange databases and websites and everything's been digitized. So I don't think anybody's rolling around cassette tapes anymore. Do you think cassettes are going to come back like records and everyone's going to have a cassette player? I don't know. I don't think the cassettes have as much nostalgia as, let's say, the vinyl. Hmm. Maybe not yet. Give it another 10 years. Maybe you'll come back. True. I still remember my cassette tapes. I get a lot of nostalgia. So maybe we just need our generation to get more uh, developed until the point. We have to find cassette players, I guess. All right. Last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? Seize the day. Travel. See the world. Hmm. Learn another language, experience another culture, and connect with different types of people. Mm. Get out of your local bubble, basically. Absolutely. Why is that your advice? Well, I've been fortunate to have traveled extensively. I've lived in Israel. I've lived in the Netherlands on exchange for, while I was a student. Traveled extensively. I've been in every European country except Ireland, which is on my bucket list. Yeah, I go to Ireland. South America, Mexico, South Brazil, and Argentina, in Asia. And so I... Getting out of it was to your point, getting out of your bubble and experiencing other parts of the world that gives you an amazing perspective on life. Mm. And it makes life interesting. I agree. In addition to the fact that speaking another language, and I think in my mind, it actually allows you to think differently. Mm. That's true. So when you start dreaming another language, you kind of know that's kind of the epiphany that you're fluent in that language or getting close. And mm. I think it makes you a better person. And there's quite literally words in other languages that we don't have words for in English. So you literally get a different perspective or a way of understanding something because we understand things through the words and phrases we have. We haven't named it. Sometimes we don't perceive it as a thing that's worth noting. Correct. Love it. All righty. Well, and last question, Donnie, where can people go to continue to learn from you? We're going to include a bunch of links here in the show notes. Where can they follow you online? 
So you can follow me on mainly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, a lot of the resources we referenced today are out on my LinkedIn profile. We're going to share more specifically. Twitter, my handle is DannyBoy777. And then we've got the Kaltura community. So community.kaltura.com. My handle is pretty simple. It's, Don, it's D-A-N-I. So spell Danny, pronounce Donny. And then lastly, I'll just do a quick plug. We're having an amazing event a week from tomorrow. Well, actually, I guess this will be published probably it's about the same time. But November 9th, we're having a an all-star marketing cast called Virtually Live. So if you go to Kaltura and Google Virtually Live, you'll be able to see that and register for the event. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. You are someone with a ton of wisdom in this space, been doing this work a long time. Like I said, you're one of my go-to experts for anything with language and internationalization of communities. Definitely carved out a niche for yourself there because it's something that I think a lot of people want to learn and not a lot of people have deep experience with. So just appreciate you. I mean, you've also just been such an incredible member of the CMX community for so many years now. And you're always one of the first people to raise your hand and help up and coming community builders when they need it and show up for other people and share your lessons. So grateful for everything you've done in your career and for the CMX community and for taking the time to chat with me today. David, I appreciate being on your show today. And yeah, anyone on the call, feel free to reach out. Happy to help. And we need to uh, meet up in real life sometime soon. I would love that. Soon enough. Soon enough, CMX will be back in person. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.